What's up, guys? As you may already know, I uh, kind of have a special place in my heart for firefighters because my dad worked for Cal Fire and currently for Tulare County Fire, and he's a huge part of the reason why I'm here doing this podcast. So with fire season approaching, I had Cal Fire Battalion Chief Josh Campbell on the show for this episode. Josh is an awesome dude and a fucking badass firefighter. Um, as many of you Californians know, uh, last fire season was historic, and Josh was right in the middle of it battling for us. Growing up, fire season was always rough because my dad was always away from home most of the time. And I was blessed enough to have him return home after uh, the end of each season. Unfortunately, though, some guys don't return home. And Josh mentions two of them briefly in this podcast. To Don Smith and Jeremy Stoke and all the other firefighters who have lost their lives in the line of duty, thank you for your service. This podcast and the work put into it is all dedicated to you. Your families are always in my prayers and a moment of silence for you. This is Hole with your co-host and producer, Chandler Marquez. And first responder psychologist and co-host, Dr. Jana Price-Sharp. Josh Campbell was born and raised in Colina, California. He started as a volunteer firefighter in his hometown. He originally wanted to be a police officer, but found that deep down, he just wanted to help people and found himself on the right track in the fire service, so he stuck with it. But he didn't want to work in his hometown because he knew serving people he knew closely came with its challenges. It was hard, you know. <clears throat> So what I was dealt with when I did go to work uh, permanently for Cal Fire, um, I didn't originally want to be there. And my reason for not wanting to be there was I didn't want to have to work on anyone that I have, you know, was born and raised with or I knew very well. Because in a small community, you tend to know everyone. Yeah, you know, you always take that uh, into consideration that that could come across the board. And uh, especially where I'm at now for the last four years, I have been the battalion chief in the town I was born and raised in. And that's your biggest fear is when you do get a call that uh, you hear a street name or, you know, not so much a, an address, a number, but a street name. And you, you think to yourself right away, is this so-and-so or is this someone that I know? And yeah, you have to work on them. Uh, but the best part about being a battalion chief uh, where I work now is um, my pager doesn't tend to go off unless it's a very, very bad call. You know, I don't have to go on the medical aids or the, the more I wouldn't I, you don't want to, you know, say they're the sim simpler calls. But uh, and unless there's something really major, I, I don't have to go. So that's a blessing in disguise for me. Josh decided to work in a neighboring town across the hill from Kalinga, even though he didn't have interaction with anyone from his hometown. He still faced incidents that were challenging for him to handle mentally. You know, you do have a few calls that bother you. Uh, I remember when I had my, my first daughter, Mackenzie. Um, she's probably four years old, blonde hair, blue eyes. I, you know, it changes your life when you have kids as far as running calls. I remember one uh, specific call that I had which was on Highway 198 of, of a family had rolled a vehicle off the side of the road. And uh, when I got there, you know, I assessed the patients. I got the ambulances there. I told the paramedics and whatnot. I was on an engine that day. What we had, how many patients we had, and how many ambulances we were going to need. And there was about a four- or five-year-old little Hispanic girl that she needed to be taken to the hospital as well. So I chose to pair her up with her mom in the same ambulance. I stuck her on the bench seat inside the ambulance. And uh, she uh, she looked up at me and I'll never forget it. She looked up at me and she said, please don't let me die. And, you know, I'm talking 
two different nationalities, two different skin colors, hair colors, whatnot. My daughter and her same age though, the first time in my life with this little Hispanic girl looking up at me and telling me that for a split second, I saw my daughter laying there looking back at me and it devastated me, devastated me to no end. I, uh, I basically stayed professional as long as I needed to for the call to be over. But when I got back to the station, I broke down and thought, where am am I going to go from here? I've seen that so often in pretty much every first responder I've treated, if they have kids, uh, that the kids bother them the most. And I've talked to many first responders. The first thing they do when they get home is they go in and they're hugging their child, which I think is a good thing. It's it's like, no, mine is okay. My child is okay. Um, but again, that understanding of the importance of mindset at work, that as soon as you see an, uh, some kind of scenario like that, you almost administer first aid to your own brain immediately in, in terms of, you know, that that child isn't mine. I'm sorry for the loss of those parents and for that person. The more you personalize the event, the more likely you are to have PTSD. So I tell first responders, to the best of your ability, put a bubble around you. And as events are coming up to you, they get to the bubble, but they don't get in. And that's easier said than done, and I totally get that. But the more you personalize it, the more you go, that reminds me of my wife, my husband, my daughter, my son, my grandkid, whatever. The more you personalize it, the more likely you are to have PTSD. And it's not going to bring that person back. It's not like torturing yourself is going to make that baby come back to life, that little girl be okay. Um, Torturing yourself, going over and over the event, castigating yourself, any of that, none of that is going to change that scenario. So stop doing it. As I mentioned earlier, the last couple of years in California have been historic fire seasons, producing some of the biggest and most destructive fires in state history. According to the state's website, 2018 hosted three of the top 20 largest wildfires, including the Mendocino Complex, the Car Fire, and the Camp Fire. Combined, those fires accounted for 94 deaths, 21,761 lost structures, and just north of 1 million acres burnt. You'll hear Josh reference the Camp Fire, and it alone had 85 deaths and almost 19,000 lost structures. You know, throughout your whole career, you see fires that are major, but I don't believe that we've been faced with anything that we've been faced with for the last two years. You know, you, you typically would joke around and call it a career fire. And some people in 30 years don't see a career fire. And I truly believe in the last two years, all we've been dealt with are career fires that there's nothing you can do or anything. You know, you feel helpless because your, your, your plan of attack is not working basically mother nature running its course there was nothing you could do about it it was going to do what it wanted to do and you better you had two choices either get out of its way or become a statistic like you know other people that didn't make it out of the way um the summer continued on and uh we were dealt with other major fires you know and 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 that that summer's kind of cloudy to me um but i do know in the top 10 most deadliest fires in the state of california i've been on 7 of them the four major fires though i would say the one that got me the most was probably the car fire um i lost two two individuals working directly with me uh within an hour something that as a person in the fire service military or 
the police force that you don't ever want to happen. You don't want to lose someone that, you know, that you're close to. And uh, it was a big, a big blow for me in my life. Uh, once we got through the car fire, I knew if I stopped uh, fighting fire that I was afraid of the effects, w- what was going to take place. And I knew if I stayed busy that I could truly live through it. Mm. Um, so I, I chose to, um, I'd become, you know, I, I worked well with the people up north and uh, the HERS fire broke out and I went to that. And then I went to the Delta fire uh, right after that. And deep down in my mind, I knew that I just had to keep moving. If I stopped, I was going to, something was going to happen. And and I knew that in the back of my mind. Josh started to become angry and depressed, but he put on a face that wasn't him so he could continue to get the job done. And on November the 8th, the campfire broke out. And I got a phone call first thing in the morning on the 8th. And uh, one of my closest friends that was, their team was getting deployed to the fire said, hey, I need your help. Can you come? And I said, yeah, I'll be there, be right there because that's what we do. I got there and typically when you get to a fire, you know, as most people do, you go check in. There was so much chaos and whatnot that no one was... uh, no one was around. Everyone was up on the hill in the town of Paradise trying to save whatever they could, whether it be life structures, you know, property, whatever, and trying to figure out where their next step was going to be in order to contain the fire. Um, pulling into the town of Paradise was like pulling into a war zone, you know, and I'd just seen it on several other fires, but the magnitude of this, knowing deep in the back of your mind that there's going to be significant loss of life and also, uh, you know, values as far as homes, uh, the town, and there was basically nothing you could do. Uh, yeah, you know, everyone that was still in town was trying to flee town. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been to the town of Paradise, it basically in the town has very little roads that are more than two lanes. Everything is kind of, you know, just your typical mountain community where people would want to retire and live. Uh, it's beautiful. It was beautiful up there. I'd, I'd seen it, uh, you know, some years before the fire actually happened. Um, they're trying to just run for their lives. And here you are trying to make sense of what you're going to do in order to stop the mass chaos. Everything on everything um, in the town of paradise was on fire. Um, the, you couldn't, unless you were actually there you couldn't an individual that has never seen something like that couldn't fathom what what was right in front of us you know the every every building was on fire and and the only thing that was still standing were were actual structures that the fire hadn't reached but the fire was spotting way out in front of itself it was consuming neighborhoods before the main fire even got there you you didn't actually know where to to start and stop it was it was something that it's a simp, sense of helplessness because you could come up with a plan and the plan you were coming up with was null and void by the time you tried to implement it which which was 5 minutes later it was your your trigger points were already burned up it, it 
And, you know, I can honestly say by the time I reached the campfire, I was so damaged. I was kind of numb to it. I'd, I'd seen so much in the last two years that I was like, here we go again. Here, What are we going to be dealt with now? How many people are we going to find that didn't make it out of the panicked and they ran and they or they stayed in their cars or, or whatnot? I think that is one of the most difficult things is when you do everything right and things still go wrong. They act in miraculous ways, but they are not going to do the miracles. And that's at a higher power level. And to understand that they're not in control of the entire situation. The only thing they can do is the best that they can do. And that's all they can do. As soon as you let a little tiny crack open up, it floods in. And so you don't even allow that to start in their their own mind. So instead of saying, oh, my gosh, I should have, I should have reached that person before this happened. If you're doing everything you can, you're doing everything you can. The rest is in, if you believe in God, the rest is in God's hands. You know, uh, if you don't believe in God, then, then it is what it is. To be a first responder, you really have to embrace that concept. You do everything you can do, but then that's all you can do. But we teach first responders that they're responsible for everything. And no, you're not. The only thing you're responsible for is doing the best job that you can do at the time. That's all. So guys like Josh see a lot of action and feel a lot of guilt because they couldn't save more. And during fire season, it just doesn't stop. These guys don't get a real break for sometimes up to three months. I was on uh, those fires up north before the campfire for almost three months. I had a total of three and a half days off in between the fires. Two of them were basically mandatory R&R. It's where they send you home. Uh, They actually let me go home uh, with with pay. It's because you've worked so many consecutive days in a row. And then uh, in between the HERS fire and the Delta fire, I had one and a half days off where I actually drove home. And then as soon as I got home, it was like I was turning around and going back again. And as far as the rest cycles go, Um, you know, typically when we work a 24 on 24 off for the most part, sometimes they can roll you to 12 on 12 off, but these fires, you know, required us to work 24 on 24 off and your body was just going for 24 hours. There was never any rest cycle, you know, typically, you know, as the fires lay down at night or the fires start to dwindle down and it's been maybe two weeks into the incident and you're out there for 24 hours, you know, at night when the when the fire activity is not really doing anything or whatnot, you can you can kind of relax and rest a little bit. Um, the intensity and the 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 adrenaline load that our bodies were sustaining during these fires was just uh, unbelievable when you mix lack of sleep with trauma it is just a toxic combination so i usually tell folks if you know that's coming or you know there's a likelihood of that coming then you need to plan for time off after that season because you're going to need some sleep and you're going to crash really hard and you're probably going to feel depression because anytime you've had that much adrenaline for that much time and then you stop your body crashes And a milder version of that is students during uh, holiday breaks. You know, they a lot of times get sick 
And that's because they've gone and they've gone and they've gone and they've gone. And then they stop and then their body just crashes and burns. Well, it's very similar if you've done three months of fire season and then you just stop. And so the system doesn't quite know what to do with that. So they need, they're going to have to sleep. They're going to feel irritable. They're going to feel depressed. They're going to feel just agitated in general. And that may take a month or two or even three uh, to recalibrate their system. Unfortunately, when the adrenals are worn out, it appears to look just like depression. They don't want to do anything. They isolate. They're irritable. Their memory and cognition is shot. They are grumpy. They, you know, they just are not functioning well. A normal day. That's when you're waking up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning. You're having nightmares about, um, and I don't even know if you, you know, you can call them nightmares. They are, I guess, but they're not anything that scare you. But my particular dreams were all associated with death and they would all go to the end. Like I could see the end result and it was, it was something that I just couldn't deal with any longer and it was affecting me. Now cops, when they talk about their, their, um, dreams they talk about not being able to pull the trigger shooting somebody and then not going down what is what is what were your dreams like as a firefighter i mean were they similar to your work or or were they unrelated to what you did a lot of them were related to work and it felt like i could never do anything to save anyone's life um and that was very frustrating for me whether it be in my dreams or whether i would think about it the next day um or maybe you didn't want to make the right decision because you knew by making the right decision to go in and saving someone's life that you were going to become part of this, you know, the problem. Um, never could you go in there and actually do anything about it. It was always, and and I don't know if it stems back from that sense of guilt or sense of you're you're starting to second guess your abilities of what you you truly were trained to do and then it becomes a sense of helplessness so i i can i can relate to that you know not as so much in the cop aspect of not being able to pull the trigger or but going back to not being able to do anything about it something that you know on a daily basis that if you were faced with it that you would do something about it or try to do something about it, but in your dreams, you can't. So you eventually slowed down, obviously, and you might have realized that you had post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you remember, was there kind of a breakthrough moment, or did it kind of just happen? How did that, how did that play out? So I knew on the drive home from the campfire that I was done. I couldn't do it any longer. Um, when I came home um, on the drive, I, I knew that, there was something terribly wrong. I I didn't want to be around anyone anymore. I felt like I, I didn't have any um, answers to help anyone sense of helplessness, sense of, uh, of not knowing what you were doing anymore, second guessing your every move. So, you know, I'd been married for 23 years and uh, I basically walked in the house. Uh, She said, Hey, how are you? And I didn't really talk to her and, I just said, it's been a long summer, you know, I wish it would be over with. And as I, I already had my game plan, uh, you know, in the back of my head, what I was going to do. So I walked in there and I sat down and I told her, I, I said, um, you know, I, I've been through a lot lately and I, I think I'm thoroughly damaged. Um, I don't feel like I can take care of you guys anymore because I can't even take care of myself. 
So I chose to leave. I walked out the door after 20, shoot, we'd been together 26 years and been married for 23. And I walked out the door and um, I just told her, I said, there's, there's basically nothing I can do or nothing you can say that will change my mind. My mind's already made up. I need to, I need to just be by myself. And that's all I wanted to do was just be by myself. You know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself all the time, don't worry, you can fix this yourself. You, you're a strong enough individual, give some time and you'll be able to handle this on your own. So I want to say I worked two more weeks, um, off duty. The drinking became horrendous. Uh, I basically was, I wasn't sleeping. I was waking up at two o'clock in the morning and instantly when I would wake up, I would start throwing up and it wasn't from the alcohol because there would be days I didn't drink and I would still throw up. Um, it got to where I couldn't cope any longer. I was like from day to day, I was like, good grief. But in the back of your mind, you're, you think, is this PTSD? So anyways, uh, I worked for two more weeks. And like I said, I, I, on my days off, I, I tried drinking myself to sleep. I, it just became more and more and more, and it wasn't working. Um, I didn't know why I was throwing up. I, I, I couldn't figure it out, but yet still in the back of my mind, I did not want to seek help in my mind. I just started thinking, I can't live like this. I can't do this every day. And, um, I have two beautiful daughters, you know, um, but it was one of those things I didn't want to, I didn't want to seek help. So I thought to myself, you know what, if you just end your life, you could make it all go away. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to worry about not sleeping. You don't have to worry about throwing up when you wake up in the morning. All the pain and misery and the brokenness in your life will go away. And at that point in your life, when you're to that level, you don't think about all the people you're going to hurt. You think about how am I going to make this all go away? So I'll never forget the day. It was two weeks or three weeks after I had come back from the campfire. Um, I loaded up in my truck and I drove basically up highway 198. I got to the top of Mustang grade and I pulled the truck over to the side of the road and I said, all right, here it is. You can do this. It'll be done and over with. Um, I pulled out my 45 pistol. I stuck it right to my head and I cocked the trigger or I cocked the hammer and I got ready to pull the trigger. I sat there with it for, to my head for the, which, which seemed like for the longest time, just basically thoughts running through your mind. What are you doing? What's going on? Do you really need help? Can you fix this? Um, is there someone out else out there that understands your problem? And in the back of my mind, I started thinking about my family, started thinking about my two daughters. I started thinking about my wife and I thought to myself, what are you truly doing here? You need to just stop what you're doing. Put this down. It's time to ask for help. And you need to go get help. I remind them that there is hope, that they can heal, that there is life beyond PTSD, that there is many reasons to live, and that the psychological pain that they're in right at that moment will only last short periods of time. And if they can distract their own brain for 30 minutes, that intensity of thought is going to diminish and so distraction is their great friend. You know, go and listen to a comedy. Go to the movies. Go reach out to a friend. Go call your therapist. Go do something 
that takes your mind out of that place. Uh, one of the things about suicide is it becomes more and more of an option. Uh, the more somebody thinks about it, the more they think about it. And so they need to really board that back door up, so to speak, uh, and quit looking out that back door and board it up so that they begin thinking about life and empowering themselves. Suicide is at a point where people feel helpless. They feel hopeless. They feel totally disempowered. And so helping them figure out a way to empower themselves. Take action. That may mean drive to the beach. That may mean go for a hike. That may mean work on an art piece. Who knows? You know, it's a little bit different for everybody. But get something that you're interested in and distract your brain until the intensity of that thought goes away. And it will go away. You know, the more you learn that distraction, the more you learn to move forward and how to move forward, the more the brain will heal. So there is hope and there is treatment and there is ways to mend the brain. So Josh decided to talk to his boss about the trouble he was going through because he was someone he looked up to. Josh let him know what he was going through and let him know that he could no longer give the department the Josh Campbell they were used to having. His boss understood and led him to getting help and seeing Dr. Janet Price Sharps. She said, in order for us to fix this, which you are significantly broken. I need you to be away from the job. And I said, you'll never take me away from the job. I've never hardly taken any time off in my life. I don't miss the work for this. I don't, you know what, if we can't fix it here, then. And she said, but you don't understand. I can't, you can't clear your mind when that's going through your mind every day. So I took her advice and I went in and I, um, I uh, told my boss what I what I told you, and uh, he said, no problem. And basically that day, he told me, turn your keys in, you're done. Josh took some time off and started seeing Dr. Price Sharps once a week. He started feeling like he was getting some answers and started to feel a little bit better. Like everyone else, Dr. Price Sharps treats. It all started with getting him some sleep. Josh also decided it was time for some change. He moved out to a 5,000-acre ranch in Monterey with his buddy, who was also a firefighter. It gave me an opportunity to breathe. I was on a place that's beautiful, and I felt like I, it was almost like a retreat for me. And I continued to do that, and I started to sleep more, and I would come over and see Jana once a week. I talked to your, uh, I talked to, to Jana, and she said, do you, do you, do, she, do I know your dad? And uh, I said, yes, I do. I know him very well. Uh, it's funny because your dad is, I've known him my whole career. I mean, it's every time I walk into an interview, your dad was in there. I'm like, Oh yeah, great. I got Pete again. (laughs) So, um, and, uh, anyways, he, uh, she said he wants to talk to you and, uh, would you be interested in talking to him? And I said, sure I would. And so, um, that's when, you know, my wife and I went over and saw your dad and your mom and they told us their story and whatnot. Um, So it was a big help for me to know that, you know, there's other people out there because during this whole process, you feel like you're alone. You feel like you're in a battle by yourself and no one else is going to understand or care. If you tell them, they're just going to think you've lost all your marbles and you've fallen off the deep end and you just, there's no hope for you. Like Josh mentioned, him and his wife met with my parents. They often meet with other couples who are going through PTSD. And like Josh said, Most couples find it helpful just to know that there are other couples out there who have gone through the same challenges. Back to Josh, though. 
In February, he went back to work, and the first day was really rough for him. I was a little bit nervous about going back to work, trust me. Um, in fact, Jana called me on the 23rd of February and asked me, hey, how are you doing? What's your thoughts? And uh, I'll never forget it on the phone. I told her, I said, uh, in kind of a, you know, sad, because I was worried about it. I said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be okay. And she said, that didn't sound very good. What's going on? And I said, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm scared to death. And she said, okay, what are you scared of? She said, are you scared of your job? Are you scared? I said, no, I'm, I'm scared of ever going back to where I was at. I don't, I don't ever want to visit that again. And I feel like I'm kind of out of the woods now and I've, and I've started to move forward and I don't want to ever go back to that. So like I was saying at 7:57, the tones went off for a vehicle rollover with an ejection right in my hometown and uh my body like locked up i pulled the truck over to the side of the road and i couldn't move i couldn't go i was like trying to tell myself uh you need to go to the call and and nothing was happening and i basically was just sitting there for what seemed like forever which was only a short time and i'm like you gotta do something you gotta move forward with this you can't just sit here and um so I basically looked myself in the mirror and said, you know what? You're going to have to, you're going to have to do this. The only way you're going to find out if you're going to be able to do this is to go. So I did go. And, um, once I got there and, you know, took command and was, you know, running the incident, I felt pretty good about myself. I felt like I was back in the mode and, and, uh, I could do this. Josh is back at work and starting to feel a little bit more like himself. He knows he has to make some adjustments and use the tools he's been given the past couple of months especially with fire season approaching. Although back at work, Josh ran into a speed bump he couldn't avoid. Basically, the state made me go through what's called the QME. It's a qualified medical examiner. And Jana called me prior to, and I said, hey, I got to go see this doctor. And uh, it says that I have to make time for like eight hours. And she said, it can be eight hours. She said, I don't know how long it will last. But I will tell you this, it's going to be one of the hardest things you've ever had to go through, and I'm sorry you even have to go through it. They're going to dig your past up, something fierce, and you're going to have to relive all this again. So it was. It was six and a half to seven hours. Straight, straight, straight hours. Straight hours. Never a break. Uh, maybe to go to the restroom, uh, but you were in there the whole time. It was a little tiny room, just you and a doctor. Um, and the doctor was great. I have nothing bad to say about you know him at all. Uh, he did what he was having to do and he asked to go through the motions for, for that kind of stuff. But I will tell you that I took, I had two days off prior or afterwards and, and Jana wanted me to have the time off and my sleep cycle was messed up all over again. I was waking up at two o'clock in the morning and I was starting to have dreams again. I wasn't throwing up, but it was all coming back. So it was almost like I had to work through it again in order to fix myself. But this time I had the tools to work through it where before I had no tools whatsoever. And, uh, it took about three weeks to a month and it slowly got better. And I'm totally back to where I was at prior to going and seeing the QME. And I just, you know, go through one day at a time. While he has had an accomplished journey so far, he's still on the path to recovery. I'm not going to lie. I still struggle with this every day. It's, uh, 
it's something I try to, I try to work towards every day to be better and to focus on more and more. I try not to let my thoughts go, you know, in, in a direction that you don't want them to. Um, I still live over in Monterey, but I stay with, with my wife three days a week when I'm on duty. And then sometimes I stay for a week at a time, but there's still that there's still something going on inside of me where you can tell when you, you need to be by yourself. And, and I haven't figured out how to deal with that yet. So what's Josh's advice for someone going through PTSD? Don't be like me and sit back and think you can take care of this problem on your own. Um, you won't it. Uh, if, if you, if you don't seek the help and you may only need one counseling session, that's, that's, you may need 20 counseling sessions. You may need to just talk to an individual for a little while that can give you some tools to help you get through this, but don't sit back there in the wind and think that you're going to win this battle on your own. And the more you let it fester, the worse it gets. Um, because, each event just compiles on the problem that you're having in your life. And eventually it just overtakes you until you can't deal with it any longer. Uh, and, and I'll say something about that too. You know, I always tell people, I don't like to call it PTSD. I like to call it PTSI. And the reason why is I don't consider it a disorder. I consider it an injury that you've sustained from the job. Um, and, and there would probably be plenty of professionals out there that would disagree with me. But in my mind, I didn't start this career with the problems I have now. I started this career a normal individual like everyone else and no different than any military person or police officer that goes into this. They didn't come into the job with the problems that they're, they've, they have in their lives now. Therefore, to me, it's an injury. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I think when you say something is a disorder, it makes it sound even worse. Um, but I... I also think that we're unfortunately still living in a time where um, mental mental problems are seen as scary or taboo or a weakness or there's all kinds of misconceptions. And the reality is most of the time the brain can heal. You've just got to set up the conditions so it can heal. And rather than seeing it as something out of control and scary and all of that, seeing it as, okay, so I need a mental chiropractor effectively. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And remember to subscribe on iTunes podcast app. We're also on Spotify. And remember to also give us a follow on social media at PTSD underscore hole. One of the things that you can do if you're not feeling good and you feel like you need to talk is call a suicide hotline. I know you don't know the people, but sometimes just talking to somebody for a few minutes can relieve that overwhelming pressure and allows you to recalibrate a little bit. The suicide hotline number is 1-800-273-8255.